Thank you all very much. Hey, everybody. Welcome to GBC. Uh, really glad to be back. Last week, I was out on uh, our final kayak trip of the season, and uh, it, was, it was a great time. I, I'm going to tell you this just because otherwise it might be distracting. I, I had a little bit of a bike riding accident. I was mountain biking on our way back from the, the kayak trip, and I, I supermaned over my handlebars, and I have five stitches in this hand and four stitches in this hand. Um, my, my elbow is kind of swollen. It looks like I was in a fight with a bear on this side. Um, and the moral of the story is, it's a lot safer to be in a whitewater kayak than it is on a mountain bike, okay? I'm just gonna throw that out there. So that, that stuff's dangerous. I wouldn't want y'all to do that. Um, anyway, I, um, don't be distracted by the band-aids. That's basically the point. It's really good to be back. We're gonna be covering Joshua 3. And uh, Joshua 3 is a fantastic passage. Let me pray as we turn our attention to it. Bow your heads. Father, we... We're so grateful for your, your scriptures and for, for Joshua 3 and all that it can teach us about how we should live in 2023. God, I pray that uh, you would give us great conviction uh, to be men and women who follow you, to men and women who rely upon you for everything um, that, that we need. Father, help us to grow in our faith. Help us to understand how great Jesus is, even from this Old Testament passage. And I pray that our lives would be changed so that we might glorify you more fully. Uh, we love you. We thank you for this time to be together and, and gathered and, and that you are here. And that is such a gift, Lord. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was thinking about Grace Bible Church this week, and I, I was thinking to myself, we would love to be more ethnically diverse, but, but we are a pretty diverse group overall, right? There, there's, there's a lot of diversity that is represented even in this service. Uh, there are, are people with, with different tastes, for sure. Some like this food, some like that food. There, there are people with different styles. Uh, like, I don't have a style. Some of you do have a style. Like, that's, that's different. Um, certainly, there are different hobbies. I have different hobbies than many of you, and y'all have different hobbies from each other. Uh, we also actually come from different backgrounds. Some of us come from different parts of the country, socioeconomic backgrounds. There is, there is a lot of diversity, a lot of diversity represented in this room. I do think, even in the midst of all this diversity, that there are some things that we all have in common. I really do. Like, I think despite all the diversity, there are a few things that we absolutely all aspire to. I think, for instance, we would all love to live significant lives. And, and if you were to press me, I would go all the way to say that all of us here want to live not just significant lives, lives that matter, but we want to live heroic lives. In, in the depths of our souls, we want to, to stand for something great and be men and women of conviction who, who not just matter, but, but who do great things even if they're hard. I, I think that's true in all of us. F furthermore, I think we have this in common. I think all of us, every one of us, even if you're, you're not a professing Christian, I think all of us have a deep desire to see God 
do great things. Do great things. I know most of us who are Christians, we, we go through life wanting to see God work in and through us to do great things. I, I, I would bet, di, bet dollars to your nickels that, that that's true of every one of us. We all want to see God do great things. Not, not just nice things. Not just, oh, I had a really nice day. Isn't it pleasant to go to church? Mm-hmm. None of that. That's not what I'm talking about. We actually, we want to see God do great things. And in fact, sometimes you, you look at the Old Testament and you're like, I wish God would do great things like that in my life. I think we all have that longing. All have that longing. Great things. If, if you're looking for great things, you found it in Joshua chapter 3. This passage is epic. It, it is such a fantastic passage. Let me read you the first six verses of Joshua chapter 3, and, and then I'll kind of explain where we are in the larger narrative. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out for Shittim. They came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over the Jordan. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and the Ark of the Covenant about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves. For tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. Now look, I love this passage. All of Scripture is God-breathed, but I happen to love some passages more than others. I love this passage. And not just because there's a river in it, and I'm a river guy. I think this passage is a clinic for how to see God do great things. I I really, really do. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they, meaning all of Israel, set out from a place called Shittim. And they came to the Jordan River, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over the Jordan River, At the end of three days, so they came to the Jordan River and they stayed three days on the edge of the Jordan River before they passed over. At the end of the three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people and and on it goes from there. There's something really important here. The first step to getting to see God do great things is actually getting up and leaving a place called Shittim, okay? Now, I want this to really mean something, okay? Like I, in God's providence, he let the place that was seven miles from the Jordan River be called Shittim, okay? Just let that sink in. It is a place of comfort. The Jordan River is a scary place. It it is a big river. It is a fast-flowing river at this time of year, and they leave a place called Shittim seven miles away, and they go for three days, and they camp at the edge of the Jordan River. So if you want to see God work, you got to leave a place called Shittim. 
okay? If you've been here in Houston, by the way, for a long time, there used to be an Italian restaurant called Crepitos. Do you all remember that place? It, it folded about eight or nine years ago. Crepitos is no longer... I, I found out about Crepitos because it was on David Letterman, okay? And, like, it's ironic that there would be a restaurant called Crepitos, but if God had really worked it out, Crepitos would have been in Shittim. Like, it would have been outstanding if that had been the case. But here's what I want you to understand. The edge of the Jordan River is not comfortable because the Jordan River is at flood stage. Shittim, seven miles away, was probably pretty comfortable. And, and in order to see God do great things, you got to leave that place that is comfortable. And we're going to forever remember it as Shittim. And we're going to go to the Jordan River. We're going to go to the Jordan River, which is at flood stage, but because by moving to the edge of the Jordan River and then camping there for three days, because that's what the text says. You're camping there for three days, and by doing that, the Israelites can see exactly what the obstacle is before them. And that, that's going to be key. Where is your Jordan River? Where is your Jordan River? What is it that God is calling you to be a part of, that calling you to do, that's a little bit dangerous. It's just a little bit dangerous. It's out of your comfort zone. Shittim is your comfort zone, okay? Shittim is safe. Not, like, you got to move from Shittim to the Jordan River. What's your Jordan River? That's what I want you to pray about tonight. What is it that's just a little bit dangerous? That place that might not be as comfortable as Shittim but it's where you're going to see God do great things because it's where God must do great things. Like, it's, it's that. There's, there's no way Israel can cross a flooded Jordan River without God. But they'll never have the opportunity to see God do great things if they don't get up and follow God to the Jordan River. they they got to get up from the place of their comfort, which is called Shittim. Here's the point. Christianity isn't meant to be comfortable. Okay, like I, I get that you can find that message in a lot of churches in America. You can't find it in Scripture. Christianity is just not meant to be comfortable. I, I did a deep dive yesterday in between football games um, <laughs> on, on the topic of comfort. And, and I did a word search in, in the English translation, the ESV, the word comfort is used 47 times in the whole English Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, 47 times. Now, that's actually not that many times, but, but here's what I found out about comfort, the word comfort. God's word brings comfort. God's promises bring comfort. The community of faith, the, the people of God are, are called to speak comfort. And, and, and the word comfort there oftentimes is parakaleo, and it, it has more to do with exhortation than like ease. But God's people are called to comfort those who are struggling. Here's my point. Never in Scripture, 47 times this word is used, is, is comfort speaking of the obedience circumstances. 
And, and so the, the disconnect here is we as Christians pursue comfort almost every day as if it is the fulfillment of God's plan for us, that, that the ultimate goal of our obedience is that we would be comfortable. I, I don't know if that comes out of the prosperity gospel or whatever it is, but that's a bunch of malarkey. I mean, that, that's just wrong. Don't think that your comfort is God's reward. Comfort is, is a cultural goal. It's not a biblical goal. You got to leave a place called Shittim which is your comfort, metaphorically, so that you might see the obstacle that is before you. And that is the first step to seeing God do great things. The second thing that we will have to do in order to see God do great things is to consecrate ourselves. And I say that because verse 5 says that. Verse 5, then Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. So this is the day before that God is going to do something wonderful. We don't even know what yet. And, and Joshua says, consecrate yourselves. And the Hebrew word here translated consecrate, and it's a very good translation, it means to make holy, to dedicate, to, to set apart. If you were asking me to translate this in the West Brazelton authorized translation, I would say, get your mind right. That, that's what I think it means to consecrate yourself. Like, get your mind right. And look, the reason I think this is important is, is sometimes in the church, we, we've made God so accessible. And I am, I'm, I'm not going to move away from that because the blood of Christ shed for us, if it covers us, has has torn the, the veil that keeps us from ultimate intimacy with God. Like Jesus has made God accessible. And, and we are to call him Abba Father, which is like a term like daddy. It, it's, it's very personal. So I, I am for that, but I think sometimes in, in proclaiming the accessibility of God, what we've done is we've cheapened God. We've made God just like us. We, we've We've created bumper stickers that say, God's so rad, he's my dad. That, that, that kind of stuff. And you're like, I am all for the grace of God, but isn't the grace of God further appreciated when we understand that the, the gap between God and us was, was not a little crack, it was a chasm. It, it was ginormous. And, and so Jesus in his shed blood and what he did for us on the cross brings us to God, but it brings us far to God. So, so that we can further appreciate and celebrate the grace of God. That's what I'm looking for. Consecrate is an acknowledgement that God is holy, that, that God is different than us, that, that he has made a way for us, yes, but, but he is different. And I think our preparation for worship should acknowledge that. Like, I, I don't think we should just kind of roll into church and, and be like, okay, God's lucky to have me. I get that it's hard to get your kids out of bed and ready. And like, I, I promise I get that. Mary has drilled that into my head for the last 26 years. Like, I get it. I promise I do. But is there a time before you come to worship, before you come before the living God, that you're actually dedicating to, to getting your mind right? 
Like, is there a a time that, that you're acknowledging God is holy and I am entering into a place of worship and I am sitting under his scripture and his spirit is, I'm asking, I'm begging God to move in me that I would appreciate the grace of God. Is, is there anything like that? Like, do you spend more time preparing for a dance or a night on the town or a football game than you do for worship? You see what I'm saying? Like, if, if God really is holy, let's, let's treat him as such. Let, let's consecrate ourselves. That's the second thing you have to do in order to see God do great things. The third thing that you're going to need to do in order to see God do great things is you have to listen to God when he tells you where to go. And I say that because of verse 4. Yet there shall be a distance between you and the Ark of the Covenant about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, how far is 2,000 cubits? If, if you're not thinking that, it's because you've already Googled that. And I think that's wrong. I don't think you should be Googling stuff in the middle of my sermon, okay? That's just me. <laughs> I'm going to tell you how long 2,000 cubits is. It, it's 0.58 miles, okay? It's, it's just under six-tenths of a mile. There, You don't need Google. You've got West, okay? Now, Why would God tell Israel to stay 0.58 miles away from the Ark of the Covenant? You might think it's because God is holy, and we've just talked about God is holy, and that, that would fit. I actually don't think that's what's going on right here. I don't think it's a holiness thing. I think it's an optics thing. An optics thing. Here's, here's what you need to understand. The Jordan River, which with, they're right on the edge of it, the floodplain of the Jordan River, okay? The floodplain of the Jordan River is about a mile, a mile of, across it, okay? So you've got a floodplain in a river, and then you've actually got the river channel itself, where, where the river flows in non-flood times. Smallish, you know, 40, 50 yards at most in the regular channel. The floodplain is a mile. Now, what God's about to do If he does it when everyone's crowded right up against the ark, only a few people will see what's going to happen. So what he says is, I want you to say, stay 0.58 miles back from the ark of the covenant. What he's saying there is, I want you to stay on the top edge of the floodplain so you can look down and see what I'm about to do. The point then is, God in this instance is saying, I want you to stay back because I want Israel to see what I'm about to do, which begs the question, what is God doing? Here's here's the good news. Verses 7 through 13 are like an editorial pause in the narrative, okay? So you've had this story being told and and this, this story is unfolding and then all of a sudden in verses 7 through 13, God kind of says, time out, or the author says, time out. And he's going to step back from the ordinary narrative. How many of you have seen the movie The Princess Bride? Raise your hands real quick. Almost all of you. So you're well prepared to understand this biblical principle. Remember in The, Prince, in the, in the Princess Bride, the story starts with a grandfather coming in and, and reading a book to sick character who's played by Fred Savage. 
okay? And so it's a little kid, and he's not that fired up about having his grandfather read him a book, but the grandfather's kind of insistent. And, and all of a sudden, the kid's really into the book. And, and at a couple of points in the middle of the movie, when the story is unfolding, it all of a sudden goes back. It reverts back to grandfather and grandson who is sick in bed. And the grandfather, at the heart of like a really tense moment, will be like, nobody's going to die. And you're like, whoa, what just happened? You've broken from the story, and now you're with the grandfather and the grandson, and the grandfather's saying, nobody's going to die. And then he goes on to say, I say that because you look really nervous. It creates tension. Like, the person watching the movie, all they want to do is say, what's going to happen with Wesley? And then it goes on, and it does it again a little bit later. Like, they get to the kissing scene, and he's like, well, you probably don't want to watch this. And you're like, well, I, I might be able to do it. <laughs> the break from the you know, primary story of the princess bride, going back to the grandfather and the grandson, it creates drama. It creates tension. Rob Reiner, the guy who did The Princess Bride, stole a page from Joshua 3. Because that's exactly what's going on here. We've got Israel marching toward the Jordan River, which is at flood stage. We've got this unfolding drama, and all of a sudden, verses 7 through 13, it's like, "Er, let me explain. That's what's going on. So now we're going to see why this passage is unfolding the way it is. Verses 7 through 9. The Lord said to Joshua, Today... I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all of Israel, that they, might, that they may know that I was, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you shall come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord our God. The first thing in this editorial pause that we need to understand is that God is allowing this to unfold for this reason. He is confirming Joshua as Israel's leader. And that's really important because Joshua is replacing Moses. Moses has been Israel's leader for like 40 plus years. Moses was with Israel when Israel was enslaved in Egypt. And he went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. And Ten plagues. And all of a sudden, they're, they're marching toward the edge of, of Egypt. And, and then there's the Red Sea. And he parts the Red Sea. Moses is leading that. And then they wander for 40 years after some sin in a wilderness that's impossibly small. And it's, it's like God's time out. Israel. And Moses, though, has been an exemplary leader the whole time. And now, ultimately, what God is saying in these verses is, this is going to happen so that Israel might know that I am with you like I was with Moses. That's the first purpose. That's, that's the very first purpose. It's important to know that Joshua is capable. It's way, way more important to know that God is capable, that, that he is with Joshua just like he was with Moses. That's the first thing that you need to know. Verses 10 through 13, and Joshua said, here is how you shall know, so Joshua is speaking to Israel, here is how you shall know that the living God 
is among you, and that he will, without fail, drive out before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing. And the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. What's the other thing that God wants to show Israel in this time? He is demonstrating his authority. He is demonstrating his authority not just to show off, though. He is demonstrating his authority so that Israel might have confidence in Yahweh. Again, Joshua's a new leader. Maybe God and Moses were the team that was formidable. Maybe it's not God and Joshua. Here, he's basically saying, I can do today what I did yesterday. If I, if I parted the Red Sea, I can part the Jordan River. The floodplain of the Jordan, as we've talked about, is a mile wide in some places. Now, this is... This is your advantage. Your, your advantage today in this limited context is me, okay? Because I get that there are better preachers than me. I, like Tim Keller, God rest his soul, unbelievable preacher. He's a better preacher than me 364 out of 365 days. But this is my day, okay? This is my day. Because Tim Keller doesn't know much about rivers. I'm a river guy, okay? I'm a river guy, yeah. I love rivers. And so here's what you need to know about the Jordan River. You got, you got the flood plain, and then you've got the primary channel, right? When a river is flooded, and it is flooded here, the flood plain is covered with water, rushing water, but the flood plain isn't like pebbles. It's trees. It's brush. It's creating strainers. So you've got all this water just rushing down the Jordan River outside of its banks in the flood plain, and there's trees in the flood plain. So the idea that you've got to go one mile through rushing water in the midst of all this debris and water's going to sweep you away into trees, that's how people die. It's called a strainer. It is no bueno, okay? That's, that's what they're up against. When I was in high school, my two best friends and I went on a bow hunt in, in Dilly, Texas. And Dilly, Texas, way down in South Texas, you'd imagine it's, it's super dry. For the most part, it is. It's before we had weather apps. It's before we had, you know, information on our watches, all this kind of stuff. We go out and we're hunting. We don't know that there's a hurricane coming in. There's a hurricane coming in. And it starts raining on us at about 11 o'clock at night. We are not in our campsite. We're in the back of Jed Brown's 1976 Ford F-150 or F-250, we are spotlighting hogs with bows and arrows out of the back of his truck, like chasing them around. It is a total exercise in futility. And then the heavens open up, and it's raining so hard you can't see like five feet in front of you. Within like two minutes, 
the field was flooded. I mean, it, it was just a deluge. I mean, it was unbelievable. We get stuck immediately. We've got to get back to our camp. I'm not actually sure why we needed to get back to our camp. Our camp was no less wet than anything else. But we decide we need to get back. We've been going around and around in a circle. We don't even know which way is back. By the time we get to the road that leads back to the camp, it goes through this gully, this wadi, if you're from the Middle East. And what was a totally dry little trough is now a raging river. And there's brush outside of the road. And like to try to cross that is to get swept into the brush. And I, I promise you, it's not good. It's not good at all. So ultimately, what we have to do is we have to get to the edge of that road and we have to find a barbed wire fence and we hold on to the barbed wire fence and our feet are kicked out beyond us because the water is sweeping them away. We're going hand over fist along the barbed wire fence in order to get to our camp. Here's my point. Israel didn't have a barbed wire fence. Like it's a mile to get across this rushing river. Like, it's impossible. It's impossible. Here's the bigger point. Your obedience in life, not just crossing rivers, but in crossing any obstacle, your obedience will come down to this. If you think that God is good, if you think that God is near, and if you think that God is capable Good, near, and capable. If you really believe it, you will attempt to do great things. And you will see God do great things. But if at any of those points you falter, God is not good, God is not near, God is not capable, I promise you'll sin. You'll shrink back. You, you will not step into what God has for you. You will step back from what God has for you. And that is sin. So that, that's the battle that you face. When you sin, it's because you don't believe that God is good, near, or capable. I don't know how to get out from under that logic. And I... I fall prey to that all the time. But I can't figure out how that's not always true. Let's look at verses 14 through 17. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with their priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan... And the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water. Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout that time of harvest. See, I'm not making this stuff up. <laughs> the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathon. And those flowing down toward the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, which is the Dead Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan River. And all of Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. 
This is the culmination of a slow-building scene, and it is, and this is a pun that is intended, a watershed event. I'll be here all day. Here's the deal. We're still in the middle of a story. God has promised a promised land to Israel. He made that promise 700 years prior. This is the first stage of fulfilling it. It's really significant that they are in the promised land. They've been wandering, hoping to get into the promised land for 40 years after a promise that was made 700 years prior. So this, this is big. There are still plenty of ites to fight, okay? The Jebusites and the Amorites and all of those people. Like, I, I get it. But here's what this passage is here to teach us. If God can get us into the land, he can give us the land. That, the Jordan, I mean, like, let's talk about the Jordan. If God can stop the Jordan, doesn't it stand the reason that he could stop the Amorites? He, he stopped the Jordan River. Look, let's leave it with this. We, we've talked a lot about the similarities between Moses, the great leader who has now died, and Joshua, the great leader who is now leading Israel. We've talked a lot about the similarities, right? They, they were both great leaders. They were both very faithful. They were both led by God. They both led Israel, in fact, through great bodies of water. Moses led them through the Red Sea. Now, Joshua has led them through the Jordan River. Lots of similarities. There is one really big difference. See if you've gotten out ahead of this. Moses, who was the giver of the law, he's the one that God gave the Ten Commandments. He violated the law, and he wasn't therefore able to lead Israel into the promised land. Moses, the giver of the law, could not get Israel into the promised land. God took him to the edge of it. He said, that's it. You're going to die over here. The giver of the law couldn't get Israel into the promised land. He was great, but he wasn't great enough. It was going to take a guy named Joshua. The, the Hebrew word when the book Joshua is written is Yehoshua. Yehoshua. It's, it's translated Joshua in English. Yehoshua means the Lord delivers. That's what Joshua means. The Lord delivers. Yehoshua. Now, that name, Yehoshua, started to kind of evolve. It, lots of things evolve in language. Lang language is dynamic. Over the course of a couple of centuries, the name Yehoshua would evolve. It would become Yeshua. It still meant the Lord delivers. That's what Yeshua meant centuries later. Yeshua and Yehoshua, same word, just a little different pronunciation. Both of them meant the Lord delivers. In Hebrew and Aramaic, When you translate Yeshua, it's English, Jesus. That's, that's the Lord delivers. So, so Joshua, the Lord delivers, is Yeshua, the Lord delivers. It's not the giver of the law that gets you into the promised land. 
It's God's great deliverer, Joshua, who's a picture of Jesus. When you sit here today, what's your hope for heaven? Is it your good works? Is it your righteousness? Is it your moral uprightness? Is it that you're better than the person sitting next to you? God says that stuff is like literally minstrel rags before him. The only hope you have is Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus. The Lord is the one who delivers you from your sins. He did it by dying on a cross at Calvary. This is a picture of that. You want the promised land? You better follow Yeshua. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would have such a deep understanding of our inability to save ourselves, that we would run joyfully and longingly and and adamantly to the cross of Calvary, that, that we would place our faith in Yeshua, in Jesus, who died upon a cross, a sinner's death, that we as sinners might be adopted and called sons and daughters of God Most High. Father, you have given us access to you and to the promised land. I pray that we would know that it only comes by the finished work of Jesus, and I pray that we would delight to rest in your grace, not in our works, your grace for our salvation. I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.